it has been a challenging week uh, for us uh, here at Poland Village Baptist Church, a, a reflective week of faith in the midst of uncertainty, of hope in the midst of grief, of love in the midst of loss. And as we come to this day, um, at least I do anyway, this day of our annual congregational business meeting, I come with a sense of appreciation, you know, a sense of thankfulness and excitement for what God is doing in our midst. We're not a perfect church. I know this because I know your pastor pretty well. <laughs> but we are a church, a real church, a loving church, a supportive church, a giving church. As I was thinking about all of that this week, God brought to mind the beauty of the one and other passages. Because I've seen them lived out in such meaningful and powerful ways here at PVBC. So today let's look at some of those wonderful uh, one another passages. These passages are some of the most descriptive on what church should be like. They obviously aren't the only descriptive passages on church, but they give an important perspective for us on what church life could be and should be. One of the most fundamental aspects of churches, relationships, deep, meaningful, significant, interpersonal relationships. One of the greatest challenges of our times is the cultural pressures that limit or even eliminate such relationships. We've become so busy producing and working, so focused on the next event, and so strangled by our daytimers with jobs and extended family pressures and school and sports and Kids and grandkids and continuing education and leisure and hobbies and family time. We hardly have any time left. Our homes have become castles, a place to, to keep the word of God out so that uh, to keep the, the world out so that we can rest and enjoy what precious moments we might steal from our hectic day. Well, the question then comes, what's become of church? Perhaps church has just become another one of those events we try to fit into our schedule. As it piles up on an already very busy life, we can get more focused on attending rather than interacting. More focused on being, on being here rather than on building relationships. I had a distant memory about this great quote from early Christianity. I spent some time researching and found out that Tertullian, the, the great third century church theologian and historian, had wrote this quote that I was looking for in one of his important works, Defending and Arguing for the Faith. He states that the world of his day, when looking at Christians, would say of them, see how we love one another, how they are even ready to die for one another. See how... They love one another. How would the people of our day, how would the world of our day, when looking at Christians today, how would they describe us? How long would it be on the list until they said, see how they love one another? Jesus himself said in John 13, 34 through 35, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples 
If you love one another. So often, we finish that sentence in so many other ways, right? By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have the right theology. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you go to the best church in town. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you wear a cross or you have a Jesus bumper sticker. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you pray before your meals, especially when you're out at a restaurant. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you love to listen to Christian music and Christian radio. We can go on and on and on and on. Now, none of these things are bad, obviously, because many of us do most of these things. We all clearly go to the best church in town. We undoubtedly have the best theology in all of town. You know, we pray before meals, even at restaurants. We, we are listened to and are inspired by, by Christian music. The point is, all these things are good. And, and, and they might culturally distinguish us as a Christian. But, but they aren't the depth of what God wants for us. See, God wants me. He wants all of me. Not just the outward expression of me. And God wants you, all of you, and not just the outward expression of you. He wants us to have a real relationship with him, full of ups and downs, full of praises and discouragements and joy and sorrow. The one another passages are not, love me, encourage me, serve me, forgive me. And they're not, love others, encourage others, serve others, forgive others. They're not give to me or take from me. They're both. They're both give and take. It is in the giving and the receiving that deep relationships are made. These are relational words. When I need help, you are there to help me. When you need help, I am there to help you. This relational reality is one of the distinguishing marks of what it means to be a Christian. We are brothers and sisters. We are family. We love each other. We give to each other. We encourage each other. We serve each other. We sacrifice for each other. We go the extra mile for each other. We seek the best for each other. What marks us out as unique in this world is our relationships with one another because it all comes from God's love which saved us and forgave us and gave us new life. So we have this new spiritual perspective that deepens our ability to love and give and serve and encourage one another. The reality is that we could go on and on with story after story after story of how people have lived out these one another passages right here in our midst. After all the stories were done, we would have hardly scratched the surface of all the one another's that have been done and are being done. There's so much going on for marriages, for single moms, for widows, for those with health issues, for those in the midst of life's turmoil, for children and teens and the young at heart, for those who need prayer, to those who need someone to celebrate with them. So much good, so much love, so much one another. As I looked over the 50 or so one another passages in the Bible, I grouped them together into four categories. Today we're going to look at four main themes that summarize the one another passages. As we get to our themes today, since I don't have a specific scripture passage to read, I'd like to do the scripture reading a little differently this morning. At the beginning of each theme, I'd like us to stand up and in unison read the one another passage that will be on the screen here behind me. 
as we read these scriptures, as we read them aloud, as we read them for one another to hear, let's ponder the power and the implications of these words. Well, our first theme is love. So let's stand together and read our passage. John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Amen. You may be seated. Love is is one of the most overused and least understood words, I think, in our whole English language. Think about it with me, okay? You can love the Buckeyes. You can love the team up north. (laughs) You can love sunny days. You can love the smell of fresh bread. You can love anything with chocolate. You can love your car. And, of course, my personal favorite, you can love the Chicago Cubs. And yet, at the same time, we use this very same word and we say, we love our wife. We love our husband. We love our children, our parents. We love our God. See, the definition of love can so often be understood only by the context and how we use the word love. Our love can be fickle and changing, good one day and then gone the next, based solely on feelings. But that is not true Biblical love. That's not what that word love means in the Bible. The biblical word love is powerful and it's life-changing because love is an action. Love is a commitment. Love is a decision. Love is focused on the benefit or welfare of the other person. Biblical love supersedes our feelings and is driven by purposeful behavior. Romans 12.10 says love is devotion that puts the other person first. Romans 13.8 states that love is a debt that we owe to each other. 1 Peter 1.22 declares we should love one another deeply from the very center, the core of our being. We can love this way only because God has loved us so completely. His love is our example and our aspiration. 1 John 4.12 says no one has seen God, but when we love one another, we show in manifest demonstrable ways, the reality of God. Think about that for a moment. Think about the implications of that verse. The way people are supposed to see the unseen God is through the way that we love each other. Can God be seen in the way that we love one another? When Christianity is all boiled down to its basic truths, we have this great verse in 1 John 3.23, and it says, To believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. Definition of Christianity. To believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, to love one another. Sometimes, folks, the most simplest of things can be the most profound. I came across this great quote that the height of our love for God will never exceed the depth of our love for one another. The height of our love for God will never exceed the depth of our love for one another. If you're doing your Word of Life quiet times this week, be, it's been in the um, last couple of weeks in 1 John. On Wednesday, in the 
commentary section that had this powerful thought about biblical love. It says, true love is an act of the will, not of emotions. Jesus did not fall in love with us. He did not work himself into an emotional frenzy that drove him to his death. He didn't volunteer for the cross in a moment of passion. He decided that he would love us. And he did whatever it took to save us. That's the kind of love we need to have for one another. That's the kind of love that makes the unseen God seen. When you look around this room this morning, is it full of people that you are loving? All right, let's stand together and read our next theme verse on encouragement. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Amen. I love that verse because it's encouraging. It says, like, encourage one another, build one another up just as you are doing. And it's an encouragement within a verse about encouragement. You know, there's nothing more discouraging than feeling left out or feeling unaccepted. Can you remember those days at school, you know, when all that mattered was not being picked last? Can you remember those days that all that mattered was that you didn't stick out in any way so that there'd be no reason to be ridiculed or made fun of? Discouragement is one hurtful word, one lost job, one car accident, one unexpected illness, or one shattered hope away. Everyone in this room from time to time needs to give and receive encouragement. Every single one of us. There's no exception. We all get down. We all have bad days. We all feel the weight of heavy circumstances. We all face struggles that, that can't be accomplished alone. That is what's so wonderful about encouragement. The Greek word for encouragement literally means to call alongside of. It has the idea of coming alongside someone to give them aid or help. It has a sense of instilling in other believers with, with courage and enabling them to face some difficult situation with confidence and hope. You know, it's the very same word that is used four times to describe the person of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. This word doesn't just describe his activity, it describes the personality of the Holy Spirit. This word tells us who he is. The King James translates the word as comforter. The NIV is counselor. The New King James and ESV is helper. See, this wonderful word describes who the Holy Spirit is. He's our encourager. This is a colorful word that speaks both of counsel and words of encouragement and comfort and acts of help. It addresses both encouraging words and an encouraging hug. See, 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says to build each other up. This has the idea of being used of God to help construct in a person's life positive characteristics. To help build them up. Romans 16.7 commands us to accept one another. Just as Jesus accepted us. Think about that for a moment. No one knows you more fully for all your faults. No one knows you more fully of all your sins. No one knows you more fully of all your good character as Jesus. And no one accepts you more deeply or openly. As we are accepted by Christ, so we ought to accept one another, even with all of our humanness. Hebrews 10, 24-25 challenges us to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. 
personal story comes to mind. I used to run track and cross country in high school. I can so vividly remember some of those races because of the extreme pushing of your body to its very limits. You know, you're at the two-and-a-half-mile marker or so and of the 3.1-mile race, and your legs are burning. Your lungs are screaming for more oxygen. Your brain is questioning your sanity. What in the world are you doing here? And then I hear something. Then I would hear something. I would hear the voice of my coach. You see, at just the right time, at just the right moment, when I was deciding, am I going to push hard to the finish? Or am I going to break under the weight of my circumstances? I could hear his voice calling out to me through the crowd. It comes back to me so vividly. He would yell, go, babe, go. Now, I've never figured out why he called me babe. All right, now he was an older gentleman from New York, so Babe Ruth thing, I thought maybe there was some New York connection. I've never asked him, I never will. But I can, I can hear it. Sometimes I even think that if he was here right now this morning, you know what he'd say? Go, Brian, go. He'd say, go, Brian, you can do it. You can be the man you want to be, the husband, the father you want to be, the pastor you long to be. Go, Brian, go. He would say to me, well, today I want to say to you, and I wish I could list every single name in here, but I want to say, go, John, go, go, Brenda, go, go, Bob, go, go, Evelyn, go, go, Dan, go, go, Marge, go, go, David, go. I could go on and on and list the names. Because part of being the church of God wants us to be is being a place of encouragement a place where we're cheering each other on, a place where we're building each other up, a place when we hear that voice, it gives us strength to keep going, no matter how hard or difficult the circumstances are, a place of acceptance, a place of true caring and sharing and spurring us on to godliness. Paul Marchinchin tells this story. It says in Malawi, practically any shoe is a luxury. Lilongwe, the capital, is maybe the only African city where I've seen grown men walking around the streets barefoot. They're ashamed, I know that, but they have no choice. So I was not surprised when I took our college basketball team from Wheaton to our first practice in the African Bible College gym. And two of the Malawans in the gym were scrimmaging with one shoe on. Several players began to sticker and point out to one another how funny it was that the two guys were playing with one shoe on one foot and one foot with a bare foot. One of them turned to my twin brother who had lived in Malawi for the last 10 years and was coaching the Malawian national team and asked why these guys were playing basketball with just one shoe. His answer was sobering. One of the guys showed up this day with, with no shoes. His friend didn't want him to be ashamed when you guys arrived, so he lent him one of his own shoes. Now at least they'd each have one shoe. And the laughter stopped. See, as you look around this room today, your brothers and sisters need your encouragement. They need you to share words with them and, and deeds of hope and care. Maybe today, God could use you to come alongside of them and share your shoes. 
by giving them hope and confidence, the encouragement they need to endure the difficult circumstance that they're in. Well, that brings us to our third um, category, and that's forgiveness. So please stand, and let's read our verse on forgiveness. All right, Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Powerful verses there in Ephesians chapter 4. I think that perhaps we've come to the hardest one another of all is forgiveness. Why is it so hard sometimes to forgive? Because to forgive means you have been hurt. That's where the rub is. We are the ones who got hurt. We got offended. We were misled. We were taken advantage of. We were lied to. We've been wounded. The word forgive is a wonderful word. One of the word for forgiveness in the Greek has the root word of grace. By its very nature, forgiveness is giving grace to someone. Forgiveness is giving grace to the person who has hurt or offended you. Another word translated forgive in the New Testament has the sense of a release or a dismissal from a debt instead of extracting your rightful retribution. So you put these two words together and you get that forgiveness is releasing someone from a debt that they cannot pay by giving your grace to them to cover it. Forgiveness is granted not because the other person deserves it, but because as Ephesians 4.32 says, we forgive because we have been forgiven so much. The standard of forgiveness is Jesus. We've all known the pain and anguish of hurting someone. And we've all known the wonderful release of forgiveness. We've all known the pain and anguish of having been hurt by someone. And we all know the power that is in our hands to grant forgiveness or to hold on to that hurt. One of the hardest times, one of the hardest areas in our life we have in granting forgiveness is often within our family. Our brothers and sisters, our parents, our husband or wife. Sometimes the hurts run so deep. Well, as much as I wish it weren't so, so often it can also be in the family of God. You know, sometimes... The hardest ones to forgive are your brother or sister in Christ. Forgiveness and reconciliation can get drowned out in the offense and the hurt. What's the result? Well, as in any family, as in Ephesians 4 describes these things, it it results in divisions and incriminations and judging of motives and gossip and slander that take the place of forgiveness. Instead of getting the issue resolved in love and forgiveness, it further divides and hurts even more people. And then agendas and pride get mixed in and you have an ugly mess. Now, we're all human. We all fail. We all get wounded and we all give wounds. The point isn't so much that in the church family you're not supposed to hurt each other. Now, obviously, we're supposed to try to avoid that as much as possible. But what the point really is, is that we're supposed to deal with the hurt in a godly way. We're supposed to deal with the hurt in a godly way. I know that I've hurt people. I know that I've hurt people that I truly love and care for. I know that as a pastor, I have failed people. I've looked into their eyes and have been crushed by their disappointment and sadness. I so long for that never, ever to happen again. 
but I'm certain that it will. The point isn't that you should never be hurt by a pastor. The point isn't that you should never be offended by a deacon. The point isn't that you should never get sideways with a Sunday school teacher or a small group teacher. That is not a biblical expectation. That is not a biblical expectation. The biblical expectation is that when offenses occur, the two parties will seek forgiveness and reconciliation. That unity and brotherhood and family, that God's grace and love and forgiveness, that godliness and patience and humility will reign and rule in our hearts. Perhaps today is your day when you need to give the forgiveness or seek the restitution that is commanded that we do to one another. Because, oh, we've been forgiven so much by our Jesus. There once was a couple who had been married for 60 years. Throughout their life together, they shared everything. They loved each other deeply. They had not kept any secrets from another except for a small shoebox that the wife kept in a top shelf of her closet. When they got married, she put that shoebox up there and asked her husband never to look inside of it and never to ask any questions about his contents. For 60 years, the man honored his wife's request. In fact, he forgot all about the box until a day when his wife grew gravely ill and the doctors were sure there was no sign of recovery. So the man, putting his wife's affairs into order, remembered that the box in the top of her closet, and he got it down and he brought it to the hospital. And he asked her if perhaps now they might be able to open it together. She agreed. They opened the box, and inside were two crochet dolls and a roll of money totaling $95,000. The man was astonished. The woman told her husband that the day before they were married, her grandmother had pulled her aside and told her that if she and her husband would ever get into an argument with one another, that, that they should work hard to reconcile. And if they were unable to reconcile, she should simply keep her mouth shut and crochet a doll. The man was touched by that. Because there's only two crocheted dolls in the box, he was amazed that over 60 years of marriage, they apparently had only two conversations that they were unable to reconcile. Tears came to his eyes as he grew even more deeply in love with this woman. Then he asked about the role of money. What is this, he asked. His wife said, well, every time I crocheted a doll, I sold it to the local craft store for $5. Scripture says to forgive. The scripture calls us to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. If you have to crochet dolls to do it, crochet dolls. Do whatever it takes to extend forgiveness. All right, let's stand together as we read our final one of instruction, Colossians 3, 16. Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Amen. This theme of the one another passages focuses on the idea that we need each other's help in learning and applying God's word to our everyday lives. We do a lot of this at our church, you know, from Sunday school to Word of Life, from men's and women's ministries to children's church and youth group, from children's all the way through adults. There are many opportunities to learn the Bible here at PVBC. 
In Romans 15, 14, it calls us to instruct one another. It's the same word used here in Colossians 3.16 that's translated admonish. The idea here is not just to teach the word, which is communicating God's truth, but it's also to warn and advise and to help apply God's word to our daily lives. Instruct or admonish has the idea of exhortation and correction, dealing with the implications of God's word for our lives. It's the ability to help someone grow in an area where God has helped you grow. Another idea under this theme is submission. Submit to one another. The idea here is the voluntary subjection of oneself. I came across this, this quote describing what it means to submit to one another. It says, subjecting oneself to one another is the opposite of self-assertion, the opposite of an independent, autocratic spirit. It is a desire to get along with one another, being satisfied with less than one's due. See, if you take this attitude and you mix in with it godly instruction and admonition, you get a growing, vibrant, on-fire believer for Jesus Christ. If we did that for each other, how much more like Christ would we be? Robert Roberts writes about a fourth-grade class in which the teacher introduced a game called the balloon stomp. We know this game. A balloon's tied to the ankle of every child, and the object of the game is to pop everyone else's balloon while protecting your own balloon. The last person with an intact balloon wins the game. Nine-year-old entered into the spirit of these things vigorously. When the battle was over in only just a few minutes, only one balloon was still inflated. And of course, its owner gloated so proudly, and at the same time, the, became the most disliked class kid in the class. Well, a second class came in later that day and was asked to play the same game. Only this time, the class was filled with developmentally disabled children. And the balloon stomp game proceeded quite differently. When the instructions were given, it seemed the only idea they grasped was that the balloons were supposed to be popped. But instead of fighting each other off, the kids got the idea that they were supposed to help one another pop their balloons. One little girl knelt down and held her balloon carefully in place like the holder of a field goal kicker, while a little boy stomped it flat. And then, and then he knelt down and held, it, held his balloon for, for her to stomp the balloon. It went on and on, all the children helping one another to, in this great stomping of the balloons. And when the very last balloon was popped, everyone cheered because everyone had won. So the question you have to ask yourself is, who got the game right? And who got the game wrong? You see, in the body of Christ, his church, at Poland Village Baptist Church, it's not about winning. It's about all of us succeeding. It's not about my agenda. It's not about your agenda. It's about our collective resolve. It's not about me or you. It's about us. It's not about ruling. It's about serving. It's not about getting my needs met. It's about mutual ministry. It's about one another. It's a family. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We love because he first loved us. We encourage because he has given us the encourager. We forgive because we've been forgiven so much in Christ. We guide because of the one who is guiding us. Church isn't about you. Church isn't about me. And ultimately, church isn't even about us. Right? 
It's about Jesus and to the glory of his name and his will. May his name and his plan rule and reign at our church, both now and forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the challenge it gives us to focus on mutual ministry of of giving and receiving love, of giving and receiving forgiveness and encouragement and acceptance and instruction. Lord, we pray that our church would just overflow with one another's. Why? Because it's all based on what you've done for us. It's all based on the change that you have given to us in our lives. It's all based on acting like a real believer would act in this world around us. Lord, we pray for our church that it would be all to your glory. From the littlest event in the nursery, all the way up through all the different children's and youth and adults and services and singing and just everything, Lord, everything. May it be about you and to your glory, for your purposes. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.